This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Piedmont says, come on over without an interview. And Junior's going to keynote the Orlando NBAA convention. We're going to talk about a bizarre incident with a King Air. And a flight endurance record in a 172 is still standing. Finally, David, it's what everybody's talking about. Gammy got approval for 100 UL in all engines. That's good news, Ian. We'll talk about it more. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Shad Colson. Shad's a aerobatic glider pilot which there can't be too many of those he's just recently competed in the uh, the international glider aerobatic competition official thing the fai world advanced glider aerobatic championships in france thank you you got it thank you well prepared so we talked to him about the preparation that was before the competition. He has obviously since competed, and we're going to have him on in a few minutes. But it's a cool area of flying that we don't get to talk about a whole lot. No, we don't. And we want to give um, props to Alicia Heron, who's uh, manning, womaning, actually, our West Coast Bureau. And Alicia got Person. a chance to, so you're right, uh, staffing. So she got yes. a chance to fly with Shad, and they did some aerobatic maneuvers. And, and Shad's going to tell us all about it. It really was fascinating. I was out there with her, and we just had a great time. Cool. Okay, let's get right to the news. First with Piedmont Airlines. This is a regional carrier. And we just want to talk about this, I think, to illustrate how crazy hiring is and how many opportunities there are right now. You may have heard ExpressJet is going under. They declared bankruptcy, liquidation, I believe. And Piedmont says, come on over, we'll hire you, no interview required. Two days later, so ExpressJet filed for that Chapter 11 bankruptcy, August 22nd, 23rd. And then Piedmont made the announcement on August 25th, and two days later. And so that's really interesting to have folks come over, no interviews, we got a place for you. And there are other incentives, including mm-hmm. a contractual flow to American Airlines, expedited job offers and travel to Piedmont's training center, which I think is all interesting. That's a good way to start a career with, you know, with, with a carrier. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, and and just as a data point, there's a Facebook group online. So if you're into aviation careers, you're you're just starting out, you, uh, whether it's going to be airlines or corporate or whatever, you want to get connected with folks early on, start networking. And one of the ways people are doing that these days, of course, is through Facebook and and other social media groups. And there's a, a mentor group. 
where you can go in and ask actually anonymous questions. And then there's like just thousands and thousands of professional pilots in this thing. And they talk about everything from military to commercial, corporate, flight instructing, all of it. Anyway, I've seen lots of talk recently about people getting job offers and not even at Piedmont, but other airlines, they're getting job offers without interviews. So maybe they've got some PIC turbine time or something like that. It's like they throw in the resume and the next day they get an offer. So it's just an incredible time. Well, they're going to make some good money, Ian. If you have uh, five years experience you know, in that type of world, you're starting at about 160 bucks an hour. Uh, with with Piedmont, which I think is pretty good. I mean, if you're looking at a day's, say you're looking at an eight-hour shift day, and I'm not sure what duty time is. Is is it 14 hours, and you got to call it quits? I don't know, something up like that. But yeah, so it's like, uh, so they get all the flight time plus a little bit on either end. Let's just call it a thousand bucks a day that you're going to make. It's uh, yeah. not too yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, it's really not plus per diem and everything else. So yeah, it is, it's finally gotten to the point where the regional is a, it's a livable wage. I mean, I remember right. when I was starting out and we we're all thinking about doing the airline thing. It's like, I knew flight instructors who had to take pay cuts to go to the regionals. It's just, uh, so that is obviously completely flipped as the way it should be. So that's, yeah. that's all very good news. Yeah. It just goes to show you how much, uh, enthusiasm there is in the aviation hiring world. And listen, before we move on, let's just let people know that if you're just trying to get into aviation, AOPA scholarship application season just opened. Yep, that's right. So you can go on the AOPA website and put in for a scholarship. Make sure you finish the entire process, including the recommendation. That's very important. And uh, you'll be eligible for an award that'll get you get you over that hump, hopefully. David, so NBAA, the big business aviation show of the year, they always have a big speaker, somebody who's known beyond aviation, who uses aviation, maybe he's a pilot, maybe he's a business owner, uh, whatever. And in this case, it's somebody who I think you've known personally over the years. I do. It's uh, we, we call him Junior. It's Dale Earnhardt Jr. I got to tell you, he is a nice person in real life. He is no longer a very active NASCAR race driver. He was for, for so long. And of course, he's the son of, of famous uh, NASCAR driver Dale Earnhardt Sr., who, who died in Daytona back in the early 2000s. But Junior owns a couple of race teams. He owns four race teams. I actually help Cover, cover some of that when I'm not here at AOPA. I do some work for my buddy Harold Henson, and he's got four of the teams. But Junior and his family use general aviation like a lot of the NASCAR drivers do to get from track to track. What I thought was interesting about this, Ian, is the fact that he survived a pretty devastating crash over near Bristol, Tennessee, near that short track there, and, and is going to talk a little bit about how how aviation has, has helped him and how he got over that crash, which was a fiery crash in a Cessna uh, latitude, yeah, which which we wrote about, yeah, boy, there's all sorts of different elements of just talking about that. I mean, I don't think when the accident happened, you and I talked about it on the show, or if we did, we covered it briefly. But the latitude was a, it was a new airplane at the time, and holy cow, they can't. I mean, they, we were just looking up. This runway was, I think, a little over five thousand feet, so right. plenty and long enough for this airplane. About 1,600 feet in elevation. It's in a valley near Bristol, Tennessee, Elizabethton Municipal Airport. Yeah. So these guys, the, the co-pilot told the pilot, I don't have to tell you, but you're coming in way too fast. So they did. They came in way too fast. The pilot later told the NTSB because the airplane slows down easily, uh -huh. which works fine when you're flying like an RV, but not so much when you're flying a jet. They bounced. Hard bounce. Hard bounce. I think put on uh, the reversers. Multiple times. Yeah, add power, 
then went back on the reversers, finally coming down, I think a thousand feet from the threshold after a third bounce, collapsed the gear, broke the wing, plowed off the end of the runway, caught fire, had trouble getting out. And they had to kick, one of the pilots kicked the door open to get yeah. a junior and his wife and daughter out. Yeah. And, and the dog. Yeah. That's right. And the dog. Can't forget the dog. So this is, I, you know, you mentioned he's going to talk about the crash. And I think this is a great message, actually, because there are, you know, there are people in the room who need to hear the consequences of their decisions, right? They need to hear the consequences of having a lax safety culture or not following procedures or whatever, whether it be it a pilot or a maintenance manager or whomever, right? So I think it's great. It's great that he's speaking. It's, there's a good message there. And the other side of that message is he wanted to learn way more about that aircraft. You know, he, he's a race car driver by by nature, and and they they are they are hands on when they drive these practice laps. They'll sit in the car and look at a little laptop computer and determine how to adjust the suspension to go a little bit faster. Talking about you know uh, the systems in the in the car, things they could do differently, where where you could change gears differently for better performance. So Dale wanted Junior wanted to learn a lot more about aviation, and he jumped into it and found out a lot more about what was going on in the cockpit, so he could be a more alert uh, passenger and understand a lot more about about flying and GA flying. So the convention is going to be October eighteenth through twentieth at Orlando Executive Airport, the convention center nearby, and that's the NBAA's annual convention. So don't they bounce between Orlando and Las Vegas kind of every other year? Yeah, like the only two venues that that still hold such a large convention. So Yeah. Yep, yep, that'll be interesting. Okay, moving on, another accident that is, uh, this one's bizarre. Very. You may have, yeah, I may have heard about it, this. In Tupelo, Mississippi, 29-year-old, came out later, a line guy, actually, somebody who worked at the FBO, taking a little bit of flight training, Stole a C-90, flew it around for a while, threatened some people at Walmart, I guess. They finally convinced him he landed in a field, not very successfully, but wasn't wasn't really hurt. But got the airplane out. And now he's facing terrorism charges and all kinds of stuff. Just a very strange story. It is. And Tupelo, Mississippi, I want to say, Ian, that might be the home of Elvis Presley or, or yeah, somewhere nearby. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, a King Air is a pretty well, – okay, as far as turbine aircraft go – it might be on the the easier side to manage it, but it is a multi-engine turbine aircraft. Yeah, and that is not something you just jump in, crank no. up, and go. Like, how do you even know how to start it? You know. I know, I know. Well, and we say it's easy, but it's like, I mean, an older. I don't. I don't remember what year airplane this was, but older ones. I mean, they're you know nothing's automated. There's no FADAC or anything else. You There's got a, your standard six pack usually. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It reminds me, you remember in uh, Seattle, I think it was, the guy stole the Q400, the ramp worker. I think it was a Horizon Air Q400, stole it out of Similar Seattle. Similar story. Yeah, yeah, just wanted to go on a little joyride. Yeah. So, Gosh, it's crazy. But this was different also, Ian. You know, we were talking a little about, not long ago, a couple of shows ago, we were talking about mental health and what you can do mm-hmm. in the pilot community. We just really need to draw attention to that further because he did threaten to fly into a Walmart, assumably crowded with people. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that, that, that's just not as pilots. We, we usually avoid situations like that. Yeah. And I think it also brings to light, I mean, he just took it off the ramp. So it just, you know, we like to think is of airports as secure spaces and all our buddies are there. And it's like, you know, the the neighborhood where you can leave your front door unlocked and everything's going to be fine. And 
okay, that might be the case, but then these things do happen. I mean, people have radios stolen. That's been known to happen, you know, even if they don't take the whole airplane. So true. the moral of the story is lock your hangar, lock your airplane when you walk away from it on the ramp. You know, you just have to like give it that little bit of thought and secure the thing. And monitor it when it's getting refueled. Like some of the details yeah. are still coming out, but, you know, monitor that aircraft, especially if the doors are open and it's on the line. So, yes, keep an eye on that thing. And we'll be right back. We got to move on to something higher, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a lot higher. So uh, I want to talk about the Airbus Zephyr. This is the high altitude aerial platform unmanned that was flying for over two months and came to an untimely end recently. But just short of, of surpassing a record set in December 19, December and January 1958, 1959, they did not, the Zephyr did not surpass the Cessna 172 record that occurred in Las Vegas, the Las Vegas area. But the Zephyr is like, it's a, you're saying it's a high altitude aircraft. It's a drone. It's unmanned. It can fly up to 70,000 feet. With an 82-foot wingspan, it's solar-powered, it weighs just over 165 pounds, and is like a carbon-neutral aircraft. So it's all the cool things that we're looking at for the future, but it just couldn't pass that that lowly old you know, Cesta 172, 172 with was two dudes in it. Yeah, two, right. <laughs> two guys, one of the guys was pretty heavy. I, I say kudos for trying. Um, yeah. We don't have the exact time that it that it was short by because the stories aren't that specific. But we can tell our listening audience that 22 hours and 19 minutes was the record set by Bob Tim and co-pilot, uh, was it uh, John Cook, back in 58-59. Uh, and Ian, that was so interesting. I had to look up the 1958 record because I was just curious about that aircraft. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we it is funny, right? Because like we talk about the Zephyr, like, wow, that's so cool. And then the thing flew for 64 days and it missed this record by just a few hours and it went all over the Western Hemisphere while it was doing it. And and I mean, that's neat, right? It's an engineering, it's, it's interesting from an engineering standpoint. But what is more interesting, is, like you mentioned, is this, it, it sort of, reminds us of this 172 flight these guys i mean it was incredible they did aerial refueling they did aerial oil changes they bathed they did aerial it took aerial baths ian they ate they ate food out of thermoses and stuff and you know and uh there's a really funny we we had to go back into the archives ian let's we'll be honest we have a 2008 story and it was it's just really interesting uh, you know uh, at the time steve ells worked for us at AOPA, and I believe you, you said he was a mechanic. We were talking off off camera a little while ago. Yep. So in the diary, they discussed this in-flight bathing incident. And so John Cook wrote that we got a quart of bath water, a large towel, and soap every other day. You know, so that's like two months <laughs> and change. It's like being in jail. Yeah. And so partner in crime, Tim, removed his clothes and stepped out onto the platform for a refreshing sponge bath one day. And he just started by brushing his teeth. And then Cook realized that the airplane wasn't going to clear an upcoming ridge. Now, they were flying low. They were not at yeah, 70,000. Right. They were yeah. just kind of just above the deck, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so so he yelled at Tim. Cook yelled at Tim to pull the platform. And and, uh, and and he struggled to complete the task. The guy was 240 pounds, you know, buck naked and um, toothbrush, you know, <laughs> dribbling 
Toothbrush and oh, toothpaste God. dribbling out of his mouth, and he just cleared the ridge and pulled that that uh, that platform in. Yeah. But uh, and that was a typical day for them. I know. You know. You know. It really does. I mean, can you imagine? So this is like you know, you take Zephyr, which is like Airbus. You know, one of the biggest aviation companies in the world, and I'm sure they had a whole team of engineers working on this, and they were working with the Army, who I'm sure had their own team of engineers, and there are probably a hundred people in the command center, right, right. flying this thing, sure. and, yeah, managing it. And then you've got two guys in a 172 who, you know, they don't even nowadays. If you did that, it'd be like high tech sport clothing and energy gel oh, yeah. and all oh, yeah. of these, you know, they'd have these super high end fancy headsets and all this really detailed flight tracking gear. And it's like, these guys are just like going up in an very early 172 with whatever they had, whatever clothes they probably had in their closet. And yeah, passed up food, like you said, in thermoses. And I just think it's so cool. It's just an amazing. They had, amazing a, they had to refuel twice a day, 92-gallon fuel tank. So that was interesting. And then a really interesting contraption on how to how to refuel that airplane while it was flying Yeah, with ground support and everything. And also, add, you know, adding oil. And, like, you know, think about, you know, you're using a quart of oil every four or five hours or something like that. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah, you really got a plan for it. It's yeah. an incredible feat. Then the record still stands. That is so amazing. Because nobody would want to do that again. Oh That's no, why. absolutely. It's like they probably not. could, right? But I mean, I wouldn't do that. Four hours <laughs> no, in a 172 was a pretty good day for me. That's enough. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's enough. enough. All right, David. Let's let's finish today talking about. 100 UL, it's what everybody's talking about. It is the big news of the year, I think, in aviation. That is that on September 1st, the FAA signed off on that final batch of STCs, and GAMI now has complete approvals. Every spark ignition engine and airframe is approved to run 100 UL. Yeah, G100 UL. And, you know, we were so thankful that we had George Brawley on a, a couple of weeks ago. He explained all that. We do hope to get Chris DaCosta from Swift Fuels on, too. Swift Fuels has, has been approved for, you know, basically for the 94-octane unleaded fuel. And they are hard at work on the 100R unleaded fuel for higher-powered engines. But, yeah, I mean, if you have an aircraft uh, that spark ignition, you are going to be good to go. And and George mentioned us early. He he taught us that new word fungibility. You know, so the gas can mix with whatever's in there uh, that you already have. It can mix with with potentially with future fuels, and uh, it's a win win. The other thing that George Brawley and the Gamma Group did that I think that is kind of getting us ready for this is that they've um, inked a deal with a with the fuel supplier Avfuel. So they're standing by to manage the distribution of that G100UL. But Brawley cautioned us that it's not going to happen overnight. So it's a, a you know a process that's in the works and will occur, but be patient. I think that was the message. Yeah, I think you know Mark Baker had a quote that was like this is a really big deal, but it's also kind of the beginning of this, the process, the beginning of the next step, right? I mean, it's not it's not the total beginning of the process, but it's like, the, okay, this is the technology side figured out. This is the approval side. Now we actually have to do this. And, and that is, it's sort of like, think about an airplane, right? When people come out with an airplane, okay, there's the technology side, they design it, they struggle for years and years. That, okay, they get through the approval, they get a type certificate, and then half of them, it's like they die on, you know, die right at the starting gate because, all their energy it goes into boom it's like getting there it is a whole nother thing to then start producing those airplanes and this is the same way right. it's a whole nother thing to actually start producing this fuel and and george is very open and transparent about that that there are still many challenges ahead he talks about the supply chain challenges 
He's got, I think, some challenges with current refiners. Will they take this up? Will they want to get involved in this? Right. So there's a lot of work left to do. And it's a little bit more expensive than what we're paying for Avgas right now. But the but the trade-off is that your aircraft engine should operate a little bit more efficiently. So in yeah. the long run, it might be, it might, we're hoping it'll even out in the long run. Yeah. And I mean, he does say, especially with the small batch stuff at the beginning, you know, I think they're, they want to produce it immediately for some of the airports in California that can't sell Avgas anymore. AOPA is going to buy some just to prove that we are 100% on board uh -huh. and uh, supportive of this process and believe in it. So I think they'll do some of the small batch stuff and you'll find that. I mean, just like Swift, you can find that in some places around the country. Yeah. Out West, especially. Uh, yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Exactly. When you start talking about, I think, you know, full on production at every airport, that's going to be still a few years. So this is, I think, great news for everybody. We, well, for example, we need to know what's the STC process, right? So what are you going to need to do as an owner? And so there, there are lots and lots to come on this, but this is a huge step that we're all super, super excited about. Yeah, and so stand by for more information on that. And don't forget, we're still, AOPA is still encouraging all the fuel manufacturers to follow through with their formulations. In fact, Mark Baker reiterated that we like to see several fuels available that all work together and blend together. And competition is always a good thing for the marketplace. So absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Hey, David, speaking of competition, Shad, we got him coming on today. Again, this is before he competed, so we'll tell you afterwards how he did. But just a, a interesting guy, interesting type of flying, and uh, we're excited to share with introduce yourself and tell us who you are and where we are and uh, what we sure. did today. <laughs> so my name is Shad Colson. We're at uh, the world famous Estrella Sailport, home of Arizona Soaring, our glider school. We've been doing a little bit of glider flying this morning and uh, hoping to get you and, and some other folks interested in gliders. Sweet. Well, so far it has worked. We had a wonderful morning Good. of doing aerobatics and Good. yeah, so how did you get started here? Like how did this become what you're doing today? <laughs> yeah, so I've been flying since 2008, some powered flying and some, some paragliding flying and I've traveled all over the world flying paragliders. I was living in Germany for a while, so oh, wow. I've flown paragliders in 28 countries on six continents. So That's intense. Yeah, it's, it's fun, but it's a really neat way to travel. Yeah. You know, if you're interested in aviation, you basically take your whole airplane, put it in a backpack, throw it under an airplane, and go any, anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Did you do that competitively or just? Uh, I did a couple races, but for me, my risk profile, the few races that I was in, I found that racing forces you to, to maybe make some choices or take some risks that you wouldn't otherwise take it's a competitive environment. You want to win and you want to do well. Mm. But it's stressful in those environments, and so it, it really took some of the fun out of it for me. So I didn't really do any any heavy cross-country racing, mm -hmm. uh, but I have done a lot of cross-country flying mm -hmm. uh, and paragliders. And I'm getting a little off-tangent, but the thing I really liked about it is it, it gets you off the beaten path relative to the, the tourism and the, and the common stuff. It really gets you immersed in the local cultures and, and sure. you meet a lot of new people. But anyway, um, so I was working and living overseas came back to, to the U.S. in 2017. It was just traveling around. My wife and I took a little bit of time off. We were traveling around. I had some family down in Tucson. To this day, could still not tell you how I heard about Arizona Storm. Maybe it was a Facebook post or, or somebody else had flown here. And I was like, oh, I've always been interested in gliders. 
uh, grew up in Colorado Springs through the Air Force Academy, and they have a huge glider flying uh, club mm -hmm. slash operation there. So it's something I'd seen, something I'd been interested in. Came and took a ride with the owner, Jason Stevens, and uh, we went out and basically did what you and I did this morning, a little bit of just sightseeing and some, some aerobatics, and I was hooked. Just could not stop thinking about it, it captivated me. Um, and this was in like April or May, and then my wife and I continued that trip, and I just continued thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I emailed him in September or October that year, and just asked if I could come work for him for the winter. I was actually just working on the line, just running wings. And, and compared to what I was doing previously, it was super low stress, right? This is great. And uh, that was 2017, so mm -hmm. here I am. So then up. you went You went from ground crew to? Yep, went from ground crew, and then uh, the lady that was running the office retired. I've got some, not that it matters, but I've got some management background and business background. And so Jason was like, hey, do you want to you know, work in the office? Mm -hmm. like, well, there's air conditioning in the office, so that would be <laughs> nice, right? So ended up taking over in the office and ended up getting my commercial and then my CFI and then still had that drive for the aerobatics. So I had been doing a lot of aerobatic training. And actually at the time I was just dating my wife. I proposed to my wife in the top of a loop nice. in uh, that blue and white grove. Oh, outside. no kidding. Yeah. And she said yes. Of course. Nice. Yeah, because we landed. Otherwise, I was just going to get out. Oh, no. <laughs> she terrible. had one answer. Yeah. yeah. Yes. No okay. Choice. We'll keep going. But cool. Yeah. So that's how we got engaged. Oh, that's very sweet. So nice. Just something I'm, I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's cool that that's something you get to share as well. Yeah. It's pretty neat. She loves aerobatics. She's She could care less about just turning circles like Dave and I were just doing. She's like, yeah, I'm over it. It's pretty. I'd rather land it. She, she likes being upside down. So. Nice. That's super cool. Yeah. Wow. So what is your like title now? Like what officially are you doing here now? I am officially the operations manager. Yeah. For whatever that's worth. Slash flight instructor or chief flight instructor. I kind of manage everybody's training. I do all the scheduling relative to the, the DPEs. I do recurrent training with our CFIs to make sure we're all kind of teaching from the same billet syllabus. Individually as people, we might describe things differently, which is great, but I want us all teaching to the same standard, right? So there's some cohesion in our training. So I do a lot of that. And where, what have you like done with aerobatics? Where has that taken you? And um, About two or three years ago, I started getting into competitive aerobatics. Um, so I did my first competition down in Tucson at the Tequila Cup. I think I had that t-shirt on yesterday. So I started doing some regional contests. Last year I went to nationals and won a national title at nationals last year. And then we hosted, um, they actually split the national competition this year. It's kind of a trial. And so we actually hosted the nationals here for a couple of the categories in February, which is kind of cool. I got third this year, which is fine. You know, you don't win them all. It's a, a learning process. So, uh, but did qualify for the national team. So now I'm on the US Airbag national team, which is super, super cool, super proud of that. And uh, the owner, obviously, uh, good pilot. He's on there. So there's eight of us now that get to go to the Worlds in France uh, and compete at the world level, which is super cool. You know, one, to just be at that level, and two, to go get to represent your, your country right on a, on a world stage. is It's pretty mind-boggling. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a Absolutely. pretty neat experience. That's super cool. Is this your first time going to the Worlds? It will be. Yeah. Pretty, wow. pretty excited. That's the learning curve is steep. You know, so it's just world-class pilots, so it's really more of an opportunity to go and learn from all these people than it is to try and you know, show off. Or, right. Just, just go fly, have yeah. fun. Learn. So this is like truly a passion for you. I love it. Yeah, it gets me out of bed in the morning. It's easy to come to work when you don't feel like you work. And I, I come and play with airplanes all day. Sweet, that's super cool. So what do you do in a typical day? Is the operations manager, well, not to sing the sob story that probably every FBO or operator in the country is dealing with right now, but we have staffing problems, right? So I'm doing probably a little more teaching than I usually do. So I'm teaching quite a bit, but usually a typical day I'm in the office doing a lot of the business stuff, whether it's coordinating the maintenance of all the aircraft or coordinating scheduling, 
um, with the DPEs. I'll get in and do stage checks um, with our students before we get them to go pre-solo or get them to go into the check ride just as a second set of eyes. Um, again, also gives me an opportunity to just evaluate my, instruct my instructors, make sure we're all kind of teaching to the same standards and, and things are in line with how we want to do business here. Marketing, you know, kind of thinking on that one year, two year, five year plan. How do we get the business from here to here? How do we want to grow? The glider ride was one of those things that we, we kind of worked on over the last couple of years. So, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. I get a lot of variety. Tow pilot calls in sick. Maybe I'm towing that day. Or her tow pilot wants to take a break because it's hot and bumpy. Maybe I'll do a tow or two. Or, do some rides. So, yeah, it's, so it's you, can, you can do every part of the business for the most part. Yes, I can do it all. Maybe not all of it well. <laughs> What's the saying? Jack and Minnie, master of none. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yep. Cool. What did you, like, what are your qualifications? What are your hours now? I am just at about 1,300 hours in glider, uh, 800 hours in power, so just over 2,000 hours total. Like I was telling you in there, I still consider myself a, a puppy. There's, there's just always something to learn, and we operate in aviation in these little niches of the whole kind of iceberg that aviation is. So you get really good at this one section, but don't don't forget there's still all of this other periphery that you can learn and challenge yourself with and try and master, or you switch jobs, and now a lot of what you're doing over here may not be relevant to what you're doing over here, and so you're you're a student again. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And, I, and we were talking about this before, too, about how considering yourself a student and that you, and, and acknowledging that there's so much more to learn is such an important part of being a really safe pilot. Totally. And that, that keeps you safe. Totally, yeah. I think, I think the common saying is a good pilot is always learning. Right? Yes. There's, there's always something to challenge yourself with. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully the challenge isn't so great that you're stressed out and you're not learning anything. There's a balance between being stressed and learning. You oversaturate yourself and you're not getting anything out of it. Yeah, so, totally. And that, that comes into play really well in glider flying as we start to talk about cross country and, mm -hmm. and leaving the safety of the airport. You mm -hmm. want to do those things incrementally. Right. So that you're not just through the moon, kind of stressed out. Like, yeah. Oh God, what am I doing out here? Am I okay? You're not learning anything. You're not thinking right, processing yeah. right, reacting right. So Totally. No, and flight instructing, that's totally something that you talk about, that there's like the kind of this, this zone where it's too easy and it's like the complacency mm -hmm. area. And then there's a zone where you're learning because you feel safe, but you're still... Uh, you're still learning something new, but if it becomes too extreme, as you just said, you get into this area where you're getting a negative experience right. you're because you're too stressed, yep. but you do need some stress to be at your best. If you're going sure. on an easy, easy flight that you do all the time every day, you're probably gonna get complacent, get into some sort of like habit loop with it mm -hmm. where you're gonna, you might miss something that you otherwise might, might not if you were doing something more complex. So that's totally true in, in flight instructing for gliders and all flight instructing, that when you're taking those next steps, they need to be Big steps, but not too big. Right. So incremental progress. Incremental progress. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting Progression, it. Progression, not perfection, is my other. There you go. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way. That's a good yeah. way of looking at it. Work-life balance. How's that? Yeah, working on that. <laughs> Especially now, just had a baby, so really trying to do that now. What's I your baby's name? Maverick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's my wife. Bless my wife. She actually got to pick the first name. I picked the middle name, but uh, in her support of my love of aviation, yeah, she gave him a pretty pretty solid aviator name. Okay. I think. So little baby math. I'm very blessed to have a very supportive wife, so she knows that I'm very passionate about aviation. Very supportive of just my drive for it, but I'm working on it. Cool. But if I get time off, I usually end up in a glider. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Either upside down or I was out flying cross country with a buddy yesterday. So that's the true, yeah. true passion is when you're like have your time off, you're still doing the thing that you right. get paid for. So right. what's your favorite part about the job? Depends. Again, I'm pretty multifaceted with my job. From a teaching perspective, glider flying is, is a recreational part of aviation. 
aviation. So we don't have folks here that have big aspirations of going to the airlines. They're not here as a step, right? They're here because they want to want to experience it. So for some, it's been a long time dream. You know, we get a lot of folks that get started in it. We're just in aviation as a whole. Um, life happens, work happens, kids happen, and they, they fall away from it and they come back to it later in life. Um, it's really rewarding to help those people achieve that goal. So, so late in life, that sounds disparaging, but it wasn't intended to be, but you're never too old to learn, really. Um, so it's cool to help those folks. It's really cool to, to work with the young folks. As we were talking, the, the gliders are safe enough that we can solo kids as young as 14, which as a flight instructor is probably the single most stressful thing I do, is send somebody's 14-year-old solo in an airplane. <laughs> yeah. um, but my students are ready for a commercial check ride probably when I send them solo at 14. Yeah. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's neat to help somebody achieve a dream because that's really what they're here for. They're, they're just passionate about aviation. They're not trying to get a job or, or, or chase that next step. And it, those folks are fine that, that want to do it. Um, we also get the folks that are, are you know, airline guys that are maybe trying to get back into a, a more recreational or, or enjoyable part of, of flying aircraft. So sure. it's a neat community to be involved in. Everybody that's here generally wants to be here. Mm -hmm. um, I've only had one client in the five years that I've been here that really didn't want to be here. And we were doing a, a program with uh, AFLAC, sent their whole corporate flight department oh, wow. down here to get add-ons. Oh my gosh. Part of, they have a, like a con continuing education training uh -huh. thing, which is great. Uh, he just had zero interest and just didn't want to be here. I wouldn't say he was combative, but he just just well, didn't have the mentality about that you it. want from a student. Yeah, he just didn't care. He wasn't ready to learn. No, he was not ready to learn. He just didn't see the value, didn't know why he was here, didn't really care. Everybody else had a fantastic time. A couple of them have come back um, just to fly recreationally. One of them came back and got a CFIG rating with me, so it's good. So he was the odd one out. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's fine. You know, yeah. it's, it's not for everybody. Yeah, but that's yeah. such an interesting point that you made about how everybody who's here has to want to be here, that you really have to seek this out because it isn't a traditional step to the time building or to the airlines. And But it is, as so many glider pilots and other pilots discuss, the purest form of aviation, arguably. I would totally agree with that. It's also fantastic foundational flying. So if you want to do something in the future, it's a wonderful foundation to build on. You get all the good airmanship, you know, you get coordination and energy management, aeronautical decision making, you get one shot at the landing. So like Dave and I were saying, and as you and I talked about, we are constantly aware of where am I at, where am I going, what do I need to do to get there to keep all those appropriate safety margins, which, which goes back to our discussion about keeping the stress levels low, right? Because then you've got bandwidth for thermal or just enjoy the flight. Um, so there, there's a, a lot that goes goes into wait, fly, a lot that goes into uh, into flying, flying gliders. Yes, yeah, there is. Hey, what's your least favorite part? I don't have a least favorite part. Is it at the end of the day when you close the hangar doors no, and you have to wait till tomorrow? No, by the time I'm closing the hangar doors, I'm ready to close the hangar doors. <laughs> okay. Especially this time of year, it gets hot. Let me circle back to that one. Okay. I'll process it. You don't actually have to choose No, I'll give you an favorite. answer. Okay. Nothing's 100% awesome all the okay. time. Okay, yeah, I guess that's true. That What's the pay like? And this is for the students who might want to follow this, sure. follow this path. So for like a line guy, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to say it's comparable if the if the uh, burger joints are paying $15 an hour, I definitely need to pay my line guy at least $15 an hour out there so it just depends uh, from what, what's like an yeah what's an instructor getting it, it's in the 22 to 24 dollars but we pay per hour a lot okay. of folks will pay more but it's per flight hour sure and so you're only getting paid oh, cool. when the propellers move. so you pay for ground time we pay so you clock in at nine and you go home at five we pay you for eight hours of work nice the advantage to that and, and really one of the reasons we have that pay structure is because in the training environment and gliders it's more about flights yeah. than it is about hours there's an hours component 
but we don't want to incentivize our instructors to do longer flights mm -hmm. at the cost of the student because mm -hmm. they make more money. Mm -hmm. right? So by paying them by the hour, they're going to do what's best for the student regardless of what's happening. Yeah, their, that's, their so much, that's so respectful to the instructor. Like, I wish that I had had yeah. um, Andrew like that when yeah. I was instructing. Yeah. <laughs> but it's that tough. makes Same such a difference. With the, the tow pilots, we pay them by the hour because we want them to fly our airplane respectfully. Yes. Care. I don't want them to pay them by them to the be, tow. Yeah, they're going to be hard on the airplane. The shot cooling the engine. Yeah. yeah. Higher probability for an accident or an incident. Totally. So everything here. Uh, is about safety. This school has a, a long-standing safety record. Just we will not compromise on that. I would rather not make money than to take the risk, an unnecessary risk. Right. So. Well, that's awesome. That's great. How much does it cost for somebody who wants to come here and get their rating? Yeah. So cost varies, obviously, like any other form of training. If you're a rated pilot, slightly cheaper. And these are I keep a to the penny tracker of what all of our students pay, so I can give you a pretty average uh, or pretty accurate average. Mm -hmm. Um, so for a private add-on, you're looking at about $3,500 to $4,000. Mm -hmm. For a commercial add-on, you're looking it's about $500 more because there's an extra 10 solos. Oh, wow. Now, those are minimums. Usually, you're three, four, maybe five solos beyond the, the minimum because mm -hmm. if you do minimums, you get minimum results. <laughs> but it's still not bad. Um, so you're in the kind of four dollars to $4,500 range. For an initial private, like zero time, mm -hmm. uh, you're in the eight to $10,000 range. Mm -hmm. The per flight hour cost is probably a little higher than a power airplane because you're paying for two airplanes, and uh, but the total flight time is significantly less just because of the simplicity with the aircraft. Mm -hmm. um, so then how, do, how does that cost look after you have your, your rating and you want to go? Yeah, well, flight? once you're rated, one of the most expensive things in flying is paying for the bobblehead in the back seat. Right? <laughs> so once you kick us out, it's, it's quite a bit cheaper. We've got aircraft that range from $30 an hour up to $100 an hour, depending on performance and what you want to do with it. Um, and then you just pay for the tow, depending on, again, what you're doing in the time of the year. On a nice thermic day like today, you might only need a, a three or 4,000-foot tow, which costs you 70 bucks in a $30 airplane, and you go fly for two hours, and it costs you 120 bucks. It's a pretty good day. Super cool. Yeah. Something we were talking about a little bit before is how you can't fly a glider alone. Can you talk about, like, the community aspect of, like, how it kind of takes yeah. a team to to do yeah, this <laughs> of course uh, and that's one of the really attractive things again about glider flying and, and the and the recreational element to it is it, it's very communal mm -hmm. it's fly. i know sorry the traditional way to launch a glider is with a tow plane so you need a tow pilot so there's one extra body they have one wheel so it's kind of like bouncing on a basketball so you need somebody to, to set your wings level and get you balanced before you start to take off roll and there are ways to do it alone but it's just a very communal activity. So you're looking at at least two, maybe three other people if you're in, in an instructional environment. In the club environment, you know, they're generally open two or three days a week. And so, you know, there's a big volume of activity that happens around the weekend. Club, club glider ports are very busy and some of them tear their gliders down each week. So you got assembly and disassembly and then they roll in some barbecues. And it's, it's just a very fun communal environment. And that goes back to that, that recreational aspect of glider flying. Airplane, you go out, you pre-flight it, you get in it, you go do a couple bounces in the pattern, you land and you go home and you maybe talk to the controller. That's your whole day. So just it, find something that, that you're passionate about, something that you enjoy. If you want more of a recreational, social aspect, gliders are for you. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So you were talking before, and I tried to cut you off about what you guys do with nonprofits around here and to get to get the the youths. Yeah. So I mean, I think. As aviators, we have a responsibility to help inspire future generations of aviators. Whether it's, you know, you got, uh, not angel wings. Uh, what's going on? Angel flight? Angel, or, uh, uh, the one where you like take kids for a. Oh, uh, young, uh, eagles. young eagles. Young, yeah. young eagles, yeah. Young eagles, yeah. That's what I was trying to get to. So, 
you know, you've got Young Eagle programs, AOPA has a bunch of programs, EAA has some programs. Um, but general aviation dies if we don't try and inspire the, the next generation. Um, we have, and we have a scholarship, the company has some scholarships that we offer, the national organization, the Soaring Society of America, SSA has some scholarships that they offer for, for young folks. Um, and then there's a really nice nonprofit here in town that's actually kind of two branches. So one of, them's, one of the branches is called Fledging Youth. Um, one of them is an outreach to like schools to get young kids from an elementary age interested in aviation into STEM. Uh, and the other one is aerial engagement, and that one's more of a, a kind of a simulator training-based facility that they have. It, it's the same company, just kind of with, with two different companies. But um, we do some work with them. They'll bring their kids out. We'll take them out and, and get them flying and get them interested in it and kind of reinforce some of the things that they're talking about in their, in their uh, simulator training or in the ground school that they do or in the assemblies that they do. Again, gliders are pretty neat. They're designed to be assembled and disassembled by the pilot. So in this, this nonprofit will take a glider to a school and assemble it. School there, and then you know, the courtyard or whatever, and the kids can come out. No, there's just an airplane there's there. Just an airplane yeah. in the courtyard. It's a totally bizarre experience, but you know they can interact with it, get excited about it, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's super so, cool. Yeah, it's awesome. What do you think we should be doing, or like we as the general aviation community, to get more kids involved in in aviation? You know, that's a hard question because some of it is just generational. Mm. You know, this current generation, and I don't know how interested they are in it. Some of the kids that come out and I get, we give a fair amount of rides, and it's always 50-50 with the kids. Some of them are just over the moon with it, and some of them are just meh with it. Or, hey, I did this on my virtual reality headset. And so I, I don't know really what we can do. I, I don't know if we try and socialize it better, or um, that, that's a hard hard question to, to answer. Yeah. Because some of it's just generational. For sure. I wish I was born like two decades earlier. I was born in the 80s. I would have loved to have lived at an appropriate age through the golden age of aviation, like in the late 70s and 80s. Would have, been awesome. have your V-tail bonanza yeah, fly exactly. around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are your goals like going forward with like personally and with the company? Like what do you see? Yeah. What are you aspiring towards right now? I don't have a goal. I was kind of running that path for a long, long time. I worked in the DOD sector for 16 years and I was always just kind of chasing the next thing. Um, this is for me, but personally I found that not as rewarding. Whereas if you just get involved with something and just immerse yourself in it, opportunities will find you and then you can when you're open to them and available to them, you can kind of just follow it. Kind of like flying an airplane when we're just gliding and the wind bumps me, and I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going over here now. <laughs> I'm going to go over there. Want to continue to grow the business, maybe an opportunity to buy into the business, partner with the owners at some point. The Air Force Academy's talked to me about going to work for them, which would be kind of a neat, neat uh, kind of full, full circle. circle. Yeah, because I, I, a backstory, not that it's really. No, no, tell us. Um, wanted to go to the Air Force Academy when I was a kid. He's doing all the things you got to do. Found out my sophomore year I'm colorblind, and I mean like this colorblind. Not like I can't tell you that's yellow or can't safely drive a car, but enough where I have a cannot fly at night on my medical, and the Air Force has enough pilots, so I'm not getting anything fast and point. Which is fine. Aviation is huge. It's an iceberg. There's still a lot of really cool things that I can do and live that dream. I can fly gliders. I can do aerobatics. I can be a fire bomber. I can do all kinds of cool stuff. They don't fly at night, so... You know, if you fight for your limitations, you get to keep them, or you can just take what you've been dealt and charge. Sure, that's a good approach. Yeah. Cheesy question. Have no you seen the questions. movie Wind? I have not. You have not? No. I can't believe this. It's, there's gliders in it. Well, you have to I'll see check it. it out. It's like kind of a weird 80s movie that's like kind of based, one of the characters is kind of based on, uh, which one's the older one, Burt Rutan or Dick Rutan? 
It's based on one of them, one of the rutans, and like, cool. it's wacky. It's yeah, about sailing it and aerodynamics and sailor. Yeah, yeah let's check you, it out. You have to. Anyway, check it out. that was my. Do you have other questions? You asked me earlier what I what I dislike. I don't know if it's anything relative to the company or the job. Uh, the expense, just as a whole, aviation is just unnecessarily expensive. I think there are things, especially in the soaring community, one of the things that we try and get people to understand is it is a communal sport. Aviation is a whole as a communal in some respect, but glider flying is very small to niche in general aviation. It's very communal, so if an operator or a club has an accident or a fatality, that rolls into the insurance profile for all of the glider flyers, or for all of the GA stuff. We're talking about insurance companies, so that's a big inertia and a big, big bit of mass that you have to try and slow down. But if we can do things and make good decisions and be safe and lower the risk profiles and the accident rates and all those things, maybe our insurance rates will come down and the cost of flying will come down. Um, maybe there's ways to supplement or augment the cost of, of flight instructors. I don't know, but I think that's one of the biggest barriers to entry into general aviation is the cost. So I wish it was cheaper. I think we'd have a much bigger community of pilots. Big time. Good call. Well, how can people find you yeah. online? <laughs> Azsoaring.com. Azsoaring.com. Yeah. Do you have social media? Uh, we do. We're on YouTube. I'm admittedly uh, not on social media a lot. Okay. Um, the company could probably do a better job of getting some things out there. But we've got Facebook. We've got Instagram. We generally try and post pictures of folks when they complete their check rides, or awesome. if we have a neat flyer, it's you know really pretty. We had a, a flight maybe three or four years ago. Believe it or not, we had the remnant of a hurricane that came up through the Gulf, and we had just the biggest, beautiful, most stunning clouds I've ever seen, and it was like not a breath of wind, and so we just went out and went flying around all these, so all these cool. clouds, mining the cloud clearance requirements, of course. Of course. Uh, but it, it was just a really, really stunning, stunning flight. So those That's things awesome. that just stick in your memory. Yeah. When is the World uh, Aerobatics? Yeah, the World Aerobatics is in August. It's uh, I think officially the 17th or 18th through the 22nd. Of and August. it's in France. Issoudun, France. Yeah, about oh, yeah. three miles south of Paris. Oh wow. Or not three miles. Excuse me. Three hours okay. south of Paris. Okay. Cool. Wow, that's yeah. gonna be amazing. Yeah, it's gonna be super fun. Are you like stuff. going back to your roots of like flying in another country? So yeah, it's very familiar. Yeah, very home. Like I said, I've, I've flown all over. But that's a good exercise too. You know, you learn a lot when you when you go somewhere new. You got to learn about the local airspace and the procedures. You don't want to be that guy that creates an incident <laughs> or, or you know, an issue from a legal perspective that then impacts the local flyers when you leave. So you have a responsibility to be a good steward of the U.S. and just of aviation sure. while you're out flying and traveling. True. Yeah. And that's another nice thing about gliders is uh, there's glider operations all over the world. So, you know, in the U.S., yeah, you can fly around the U.S. I guess you could fly your, your airplane over overseas, but you could take a vacation to Europe as a glider pilot and go fly around in Europe. That's totally true. Fly That's down, cool. Fly down the Alps or... Have you done that? I have. It's stunning. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. Stunning. Did you do like a cross country? Like I'm just imagining just like the opening scene of The Sound of Music, but like in a glider with all yeah. the music and... Yeah. Fly a couple hundred kilometers. <sighs> you know, come back for lunch. That's super cool. <laughs> yeah. Two, three hours. Yep. At 10, 12,000 feet. That's hopping amazing. from cloud to cloud. Wow. Yep. With nothing but the sound of the wind. Go That's incredible. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Wow. That's really special. I'm gonna do that. Adding that to the to-do list. Come and see me. Yeah. It'll take good care of me. That'd be awesome. Cool. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much. Fun morning. Yeah. Thanks for all your time and your expertise and your knowledge and your enthusiasm and your good sense of humor. <laughs> you can't laugh at it. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Okay, David, so really cool to hear from him. Unfortunately, the competition, I'm sure, didn't go as well as he had hoped. The team competition, I think we placed last, and Shad did a little better. He was, what, 25th, I believe you said? 25th out of 28th. They, there were some weather problems and some equipment problems that were holding Shad back and his team back. But, you know, just Ian really traveling over to France and oh, yeah. participating. What a huge disadvantage there, I think, for these competitions. Right. To get your equipment there and, yeah. and everything and not to know the local weather as much. Although he did have some uh, experience flying in Europe. But it's all good. I think that it's great that we were represented by Shad. I met him in person. He was a great guy. We went flying. I learned a lot about glider flying from him. And actually, Alicia Heron, who who helped conduct the interview, she was on the ground kind of waiting for us to land. And I was having such a good time. We just kept flying. You want to come you know? down? Yeah, no, man. Of course not. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Very good. All right. Well, congrats to them for the competition, and I think that's all the time we have. We'll see you next time, David. All right. See you next time, Ian. Don't forget, you can find us at aapa.org slash hangartalk on YouTube on occasion and wherever you get your podcast. All right. We'll see you next time. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.